Good morning. I am Professor Ray Mullison from King's College, uh, uh, London. And my today's lecture is on democracy and international law. As a subtitle, I would call it Democracy, a Destiny of Humankind, with a question mark at the end. And my own approach, I would call a qualified, contingent, and contextual case for democracy uh, promotion. So, uh, a couple of preliminary remarks. The post-Cold War globalization includes as uh, uh, its substantial components the broadening of both market economy and democracy. Both have spread by way of borrowing from more developed societies what has worked there and made them uh, successful as well as by means of purposeful efforts to promote these ideas and uh, practices. Often seen as court motherhood and apple pie, markets and democracy have, however, been a mixed blessing. Successful and beneficial for most of the population in many cases, while rather destructive in other uh, circumstances. Why has it been so? What factors have determined success in one set of circumstances and failures in others? Today I will try to give some tentative answers to these questions as well. Democracy has certainly a lot to do with international law. Professor Tom Frank in 1990 already wrote of the emergence of the right to democratic governance. Some years later, Professor James Crawford uh, as a new Werewolf professor here in Cambridge, where my lecture is recorded, gave his inaugural lecture that was entitled Democracy in International Law. Article 25 of the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights supported and clarified uh, in some other articles of the Covenant some closest among universal and legally binding norms that provides for what may be called the right to uh, democracy. The article says, I'm quoting, every citizen shall have the right and the opportunity without any of the distinctions mentioned in Article 2 and without unreasonable restrictions, A, to take part in the conduct of public affairs directly or through freely chosen representatives. B, to vote and to be elected at genuine periodic elections, which shall be by universal and equal suffrage and shall be held by secret ballot, guaranteeing the free expression of the will of the electors. And C, to have access on general terms <coughs> of equality to public service in his country. However, Notwithstanding uh, optimistic views of distinguished professors, and I myself uh, at the time belonged to this category of optimists, and was even quoted by Professor Crawford in his lecture, which was later published under the same title. The right to democracy, however, has hardly become uh, universal. First, its content is too general to be of much help in practice. And secondly, its practical implementation is not general enough to reflect universal normative values. Why is it so? 
Why do we have so many problems, setbacks and sometimes backlashes with democracy and democratization in today's world? There are many reasons for that and in my short lecture I cannot even enumerate all the problems and difficulties in various parts of the world. Therefore I will concentrate only on some of them. When we speak of the spread or promotion of democracy, we have to put at least three, probably even more, but at least three fundamental questions. The first of them is, do all societies in the process of their evolution have to go through the same stages? Do they all at the end of the day evolve towards the same general model, and in our case, a democratic model? Even if we have sufficient grounds to believe that all, or at least most societies indeed, are generally following in some important respects the same historical path and democracy in its various manifestations, of course, is one of the features which all societies sooner or later will have, we still have to ask whether societies that are less developed can take shortcuts in order to reach the image of their own future that they see in more developed uh, societies. And the third question is, to what extent can external support compensate for weaknesses of domestic democratic potential? I would like to concentrate uh, on uh, three, these three, on trying to answer these three questions in uh, uh, my lecture. Karl Marx in one of his most deterministic statements predicted that the country that is more developed industrially only shows to the less developed the image of its own future. A deterministic approach to history is not the domain of only Marx or Marxists, of course. Many of those who have promoted democracy in the world also see the development of different societies as going through the same historical uh, uh, sequences. Already a century ago, American Baptists, in their attempt prior to the Bolshevik Revolution uh, in Russia of 1917, uh, trying to civilize Russia, they believed that for Russia, sooner or later, I am quoting, there will be Runnymede and a Magna Carta, if not a Bunker Hill and Yorktown. The same we can see in today's world. Therefore, uh, Kishore Mahbubani, uh, the senior Singaporean diplomat, uh, recently wrote, I am quoting, paradoxically, in the post-Cold War era, the West seems to have become an ideologically driven entity. The iconization of democracy, an unquestionably virtuous idea, became an ideological crusade that insisted democracy could be exported to any society everywhere in the world, regardless of its stage of political development. It is difficult not to, disagree, uh, not to uh, uh, agree with uh, uh, Ambassador uh, Mahbubani. While criticizing or, or even ridiculing such rigid historical determinism, it would be equally wrong to fall into another extreme and deny that there are 
there are some historical patterns and regularities. In that respect, it is important to note that what we see today in some developing uh, countries one could have noticed in the Europe of some two, three hundred years ago. For example, the attitude towards women, religious intolerance, and so on. Though there aren't any iron necessities in Marxian, Fukuyaman, or any other sense, in the social sphere, certain regularities still uh, exist. My predecessor here at this table, <laughs> Philip Hallett, uh, also from uh, Cambridge, has given, in my opinion, the best answer to the dilemma of voluntarism versus determinism. Quoting him, it is as if an ingenious and inquisitive creator has chosen to conduct an experiment in one small corner of the universe, an experiment in which a piece of matter would be given a certain measure of control over its changing states. A living organism would be given a special kind of choice over its own life. But two possibilities of control and choice would be withheld the possibility of simply submitting entirely to the, to the necessary order of the physical universe, and the possibility of acting entirely independently of the necessary order of the physical universe. So two extreme options are closed. As the freedom of choice is relative, so are the constraints, both of the physical universe and of the existing social order. People are able, but only to an extent, and often with disastrous side effects, to change the order of the physical universe. People are also able to transform the existing social order, but many constraints exist, and people neglect them at their peril. The deterministic approach to history, being an outgrowth of the Enlightenment legacy, as its opposite, voluntarism, which stems from the same source. Voluntaristic approach to democracy promotion means that if one were to consider that democracy is the best, if not the only worthwhile political arrangement for every society, it would be possible and necessary to export democracy to places, say, like today's Afghanistan or Iraq. Here, deterministic and voluntaristic approaches in practice lead to the same result. From my point of view, the honest answer to the first question is, I don't know whether at the end of the day all societies become democratic. I doubt it, but there is no way of knowing it for sure. In any case, if they all will come uh, someday, uh, democratic. This will, be, this will not be necessarily a Western-style liberal democracy. To answer the second question about shortcuts, I would like to tell a story that, from my point of view, well illustrates the problem. In the 1770s, a royal physician, Johann Friedrich Struense, by a strange and fatal confluence of circumstances, became so close to physically and mentally feeble and unstable King Christian VII of Denmark 
that soon he was the most influential person and de facto prime minister in the country, issuing laws that, among other interesting and wonderful things, like the abolition of serfdom and secession of subsidies to unprofitable industries owned by the nobility, also included unrestricted freedom of expression and religious freedoms. Unfortunately, though quite predictably, such laws had little uh, effect in the 18th century Danish kingdom. And the only tangible result of the freedom of expression was that shortly everybody started to talk about Struensee's love affair with the queen, which probably was true. Soon the man, uh, who was well ahead of his time, he had uh, studied in Paris with uh, uh, Enlightenment uh, heavy uh, figures, and therefore probably was far ahead of his time in uh, Denmark. He was executed and the queen was sent into exile. As a reaction to Struensee's reform attempts, Denmark became even less tolerant and free than it had been before. The royal physician had tried to put into practice uh, some radical ideals of uh, the Enlightenment. It took centuries before these noble ideas be uh, became the reality uh, in Europe, including the Kingdom of Denmark. Such failures may be inevitable because there is an issue indeed of democracy readiness. Thomas, Freedom, uh, sorry, Thomas Friedman, a New York Times columnist, once put one of the most pertinent questions concerning democratization and other things too, of course, though he himself didn't know the answer, but probably he didn't dare to formulate one. He asked in, uh, on the pages of uh, International Herald uh, Tribune, Quoting, was Iraq the way Iraq was because Saddam was the way Saddam was? Or was Saddam the way Saddam was because Iraq was the way Iraq was? The truth probably was that Saddam was the way he was because Iraq was the way it was, and vice versa too. In some societies, unfortunately, the short or even middle-term choice would be between a secular dictatorship religious totalitarianism, anarchy, or even civil war. In such cases, the best scenario may indeed uh, be an enlightened dicta dictatorship, but a rare breed indeed. There are more uh, unenlightened dictators in the world than enlightened, of course. But they may be and uh, they may gradually and or may not open uh, countries up for uh, democracy. Now to the third question. Whether and to what extent outside forces can influence the democratic processes in a specific country? It depends on many circumstances, including it depends on many circumstances, including but not limited to the relative strength of local pro-democratic forces, the presence and the level of material and cultural uh, preconditions, the presence and the size of the middle class in the country, 
identity-based divisions such as ethnic, religious, regional, tribal, the size and even geographic location of the country, for example, whether it is closer to Finland or Afghanistan, and many other variables. Some don't consider such factors as preconditions, but rather as core facilitators or non-facilitators that would make democratization harder or easier. I would agree with such an approach if we were to have that some combinations of such non-facilitators make democratization impossible at least for the time being. Outside pressure for democratization may indeed affect positive transformations, but usually in smaller countries, and even then only when there is a confluence of uh, favorable uh, conditions or facilitators. In their foreign policies, such states practice what may be called bandwagoning. That's to say, they are prone to join stronger and more prosperous actors states accepting to a great extent their culture and ways of life. We can see it in uh, Eastern Europe, in the Baltic countries, for example. Big countries which, due to their history, potential and size, have great power ambitions, on the contrary resort to balancing. That's to say, their response to outside pressure, especially if this is very explicit and aggressive, on questions of their foreign policy and especially of domestic affairs is usually defiance and internal consolidation against external challenges. The post-Cold War experience has shown that pushing aggressively for a change in other societies, positive changes even, is as dangerous as counter and counterproductive as the rejection of changes whose time has come and which are called for the people of uh, the country. Now, speaking of democratization of non-democratic societies, one has to bear also in mind what I would call dialectical contradictions of democracy. That's to say, contradictions between phenomena that, on the one hand, presume, but on the other hand, also negate or at least constrain each other. Democracy seems to form such contradictions with three other important social phenomena. And these pairs of contradictions are democracy and market economy, democracy and liberalism, democracy and nationalism. The elements of these pairs are related to each other in their genesis, and historically they have supported each other while at the same time constraining also each other, and in some circumstances even violently clashing with each other. They have to be kept in mind when and if one becomes involved in the process of democratization. First, democracy and market economy. My first observation is that there has been no democracy without market economy, though there have been market economy without democracy. Uh, this uh, shows that uh, really historically and uh, uh, even theoretically, democracy and market economy go uh, closely together. But 
also. The parallel spread of market economy and democracy in practice has some serious problems. The shock introduction of markets, especially unbridled markets, make a few extremely rich, while many become even poorer than they were under the previous system. As one of the central tenets of democracy, with some important qualifications, of course, is that the many count more than the few, it should be clear that economic shock therapy and political democracy are incompatible, and one either has a shock or a democracy. They don't come together. Cambridge economist Ah Yun Chang writes that free market and democracy are not natural partners, though it has to be emphasized that Professor Chang is not speaking of market economy as such, but of the introduction of free market or rather unbridled markets as advocated by Milton Friedman and his followers. One of the most persistent market-friendly advocates of political freedoms of democratic Karl Popper already half a century ago incisively wrote, I am quoting, even if the state protects its citizens from being bullied by physical violence, as it has in principle under the system of unrestrained capitalism, it may defeat our ends by its failure to protect them from the misuse of economic power. In such a state, the economically strong is still free to bully one who is economically weak and to rob of his freedom. Under these circumstances, unlimited economic freedom can be just as self-defeating as unlimited physical freedom, and economic power may be nearly as dangerous as physical violence. Indeed, Unbridled economic freedoms are as damaging for individual liberties as a complete lack of economic freedoms is in totalitarian states, for example. It seems that free market, capitalism, and liberal democracy, phenomena that on the one hand presume each other, are at the same time also constantly in a kind of rivalry and competition. The freer is a market, the greater is the economic inequality. The greater inequality, the less would be their democracy, and vice versa. Economic inequality de facto and inevitably increases political inequality, while political equality puts brakes on the widening of economic inequality. Democracy tries to make a society more equal, while unbridled market increases inequality. The result of such constant balancing is that in Western European liberal democracies, for example, these two spheres, political and economic, while supporting each other, also constantly temper each other, soften each other's impacts. In the developing world, simultaneous introduction of free markets and democracy may be quite disastrous. Yeltsin's Russia may serve as, a, as an example or rather maybe a warning. Professor Amy Chua, though overgeneralizing in my opinion on the negative role of so-called market-dominant minorities in the process of globalization, 
nevertheless makes a point that is highly relevant in some specific contexts. She observes that, I'm quoting, the global spread of free market democracy has been a principal aggravating cause of ethnic instability and violence throughout the non-Western world. I am saying she is a bit overgeneralizing, but in some specific circumstances, that's true. The reason for such pessimistic conclusion is that in some developing and post-communist countries, there are indeed ethnic minorities who are generally better educated, more entrepreneurial, own disproportionate acreage of land, for example, maybe even more hardworking or otherwise more fortunate than the rest of the population. They usually gain immensely from the liberalization of markets, while the majority benefits only marginally, if at all. A simultaneous introduction of democracy releases suppressed discontent that creates a combustible mixture ready to explode in xenophobia, ethnic cleansing, or even in acts of genocide. Such minorities uh, exist, for example, or they are uh, Indians in East Africa, Lebanese in West Africa, Ivo in Nigeria, Tutsi in Rwanda, Chinese in many Southeast Asian countries, and so on. In such cases, there is either a market backlash or democracy backlash. In extreme cases, at the end of the day, there is neither market nor uh, democracy. Professor Chua's pertinent observation uh, leads us to the issue of the relationship between democracy and nationalism, the third uh, uh, pair of these dialectical uh, uh, contradictions of uh, democracy. Democracy and nationalism are related in uh, various ways. If democracy is almost an unquestioned uh, good, nationalism, especially after the Nazi atrocities in Europe and the proliferation of inter-ethnic conflicts in the post-Cold War world, as well as so-called ethnic uh, cleansing at the turn of uh, the century, is often considered as something wholly negative, dangerous, and not fit for today's post-modern uh, world. However, the emergence and development of democratic governance in Western Europe was closely linked with the rise of nationalism and so-called nation states. John Stuart Mill, one of the greatest liberal thinkers, argued that among the people without fellow feeling, especially if they read and speak different languages, the united public opinion necessary uh, to the workings of representative institutions cannot exist. Historically, the emergence and development of democracy was, if not conditioned, then at least facilitated by the homogeneous nature of societies. And if they were not homogeneous enough, they had to be made such. As the Italian novelist and politician Massimo Daparelli Tasseglio famously put it in 1861, we have created Italy, now all we have to do is to create Italians. To put it otherwise, without a degree of homogeneity, Tasseglio believed the country wouldn't stay together. 
homogenization facility, not only state building, but also the progress towards democracy and human rights. Violent clashes that have regularly erupted in different parts of the world in the 1990s are to an extent similar to some that were endemic in Western Europe hundreds of years ago. Then and now many conflicts had nationalism, state building, and also democratization among their causes. However, there are also huge differences between nation building in Western Europe to 300 years ago and current developments. In the era of the formation of nation states in Western Europe, the use of violence, either for the purposes of unifying separate political entities or assimilating those who spoke different languages or professed other religions, was not only lawful, it was completely normal. Western Europe went through this process of homogenization through its ethnic cleansing, not necessarily in genocidal forms, of course, but at the time when not only international law, but also public morality didn't condemn uh, such acts. Now, taken in isolation, some states in Eastern or, uh, or Central Europe may indeed have to go through the same process of homogenization that their more advanced Western neighbors went through centuries ago. However, these states are not to be taken in isolation, and they themselves don't want to be taken in isolation. They want to join prosperous uh, communities, be allied uh, to prosperous and free states. <coughs> uh, therefore, they have to be taken not out of their geographical and temporal context. The search for solutions to minority problems, for example, has to be put into wider international and regional context. In Europe, this is, first of all, the European context. The role of the world community, regional and universal international organizations is important in deciding what form the process of democratization and accompanying its rise of nationalism takes in specific countries. Though it is necessary to warn that even if the world community were able to speak with one and wise voice, a rare commodity indeed, external influence has always its uh, limits. Although today there are very few states in the world that could be called nation states in the true sense of the word, that's to say, states being composed mainly of one ethnicity, being more or less monoethnic. States where ethnic fault lines are very distinct, where ethnicities have been forced by authoritarian governments to live together, and where the culture of tolerance is lacking, such states are prone to disintegrate as soon as the country starts opening up. Suppressed Secessionist sentiments gain new momentum, which is often unstoppable. Also, the Utipositatis Juris principle of international law have what you had just before becoming independent. And this principle declares that existing internal administrative borders, especially those of federal states, 
should become recognized as new international borders, may have given additional support for secessionist uh, sentiments. Both external pressure to force recalcitrant ethnicities to live together and separation along ethnic lines are options that are not conducive to uh, democracy or democratization. Now, wrapping up my observations on difficulties and problems of democratization, I would like to conclude that today the issue is not so much whether democracy is in principle preferable to other forms of government. In my opinion, it is, but not necessarily in the opinion of many other people in uh, the world. The most serious practical as well as theoretical problems in this field are how to get there, how to transform a non-democratic society into a democratic one, and is democracy really suitable for every society, at least now. For outsiders to help other, others promote democracy and human rights, it is necessary not only to be sincere and enthusiastic, but also to have quite a deep knowledge and understanding of other societies as well as enough humility to be aware of the limits of the positive effect any outside interference may have. In the absence of these conditions, any outside meddling does more ill than good. However, when these conditions are met, outsiders may contribute indeed to a spread of democracy that indeed has both intrinsic as well as instrumental uh, uh, value. Harvard economist Professor Danny Roderick has written about uh, why some developing countries have succeeded in their economic reforms while others have failed. He remarks that none has succeeded when diligently following the IMF or World Bank prescriptions. He emphasizes Nevertheless, that learning from other countries is always useful. Indeed, it is indispensable. But straightforward borrowing or rejection of policies without full understanding of the context that enabled them to be successful or led them to failures is a recipe for disaster. I think that this insightful observation is as true or maybe even truer in the case of democratic reforms and promotion of democracy. Democracy, democratic institutions and values are more intimately related to and dependent on history and the culture of a society than economic and financial institutions. Learning, not borrowing, but at the same time not discarding the experience of other societies by self-servingly overemphasizing one's uniqueness is the best way to proceed. Democratization is more an art than a science, even if we have in mind only social sciences, which all contain in different proportions a degree of artfulness. 
Not every politician who speaks of human rights and democracy in faraway places is necessarily a hypocrite. Not every human rights activist who claims to know a remedy for a dire human rights situation in a distant country is inevitably ignorant or naive. And not even every autocrat who claims to have the support of the population is to be automatically considered wrong. Sometimes they are right. However, it is always safer to doubt and double check. In matters where practical interests and ideology intermingle, one can never be sure. Thank you for your attention.